I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Coming up on The Trade Guys, we'll give you a post-election readout and what it means for trade. We'll talk about CFIUS reviews in social media, both Twitter and TikTok. And finally, we'll talk about U.S.-China relations in wake of the G20, all on this episode of The Trade Guys. Welcome back to The Trade Guys. I want to thank trade gal, Emily Benson, for sitting in for me. You know, it's about time we got ourselves a real host, and Emily is a real host. So big thanks to Emily. Guys, welcome back. Now that the dust has settled after the election, at least a bit more on the election outcomes, what can we predict about the effect the elections will have on trade policy? Brief commercial here. I've written two columns. My last two columns are on this. What to expect in the lame duck. We had no idea that you wrote two columns. <laughs> well, I said commercial coming. First one was what to expect in the lame duck. And the second one was what to expect next year. I think in both cases, uh, it was not a lot. And the lame duck, I think we'll see an effort to clean up loose ends. Uh, you know, if you'll recall, we've talked about this before. The When the House and the Senate were working on the CHIPS Act, there was a trade title in the Senate bill that had a whole bunch of stuff in it. Renewal of the Generalized Systems of Preference Program, renewal of the Miscellaneous Tariff Program, renewal of trade adjustment assistance, some trade law changes, changes in the de minimis rules. All of that got dropped. And there's going to be a movement, I know, to try to get as much of that through between now and the end of the year as possible. Uh, my expectation is that most, if not all, of that will fail. There's a, a developed, unfortunately, gridlock between the Democrats who want to renew trade adjustment assistance because workers need that. It's a training program for workers who lost their job because of trade. And the Republicans who want to renew negotiating authority, trade promotion authority, which expired at the end of June 2021 and which the administration so far has had no interest in renewing. And the Republicans say they won't support TAA unless the Democrats support TPA. The Democrats say they don't want to do TPA, so impasse. Maybe they'll get some small stuff, but I'm not optimistic. I'm also not optimistic because when control shifts, as it has in, in the House, what usually happens is the incoming majority says, don't do anything beyond the minimum. You know, we'll take care of it next year because the hint is we'll do a better job. Next year, I look for uh, actually TPA being back on the table. There's a contest for new chairman of the Ways and Means Committee because the old senior Republican, Kevin Brady, is retiring. He may have timed out anyway, but in any event, there's, going, there's a contest. It's a three-way contest uh, so far between three members of the committee, Vern Buchanan from Florida, Adrian Smith from Nebraska, and Jason Smith from uh, Missouri. So far, two of them, Adrian Smith and Buchanan, have both put TPA on their Ways and Means agenda. And they've both attacked the president for not pursuing enough trade agreements, not pursuing in specific the ones that Trump started, UK and Kenya, and not being interested in market access. That hasn't persuaded the president to change his view yet. But it does suggest that Republicans may make something of an issue out of this. 
at least on the Ways and Means Committee, and may try to pass something on negotiating authority, which will be hard because that really is a trade bill. And as Scott and I know from past experience, as both lobbyists and, and me on the Hill, this is just, uh, you know, catnip for trade wonks. You know, it, it's, if it looks like the train's going to leave the station, everybody wants to throw their baggage on board. And you end up with all kinds of amendments and it gets very complicated very quickly because people want to add stuff. So even if you can work out the things that are already on the table, you've got to deal with all these other things that come floating in from the stratosphere. So it will be difficult. It may put the administration in an awkward position because they have not been enthusiastic about getting new authority, which is a little bit disappointing. They'll live to regret that, but they haven't gotten there yet. I'm waiting to see how the Republicans divide on this. I mean, the people we're hearing from that want to do this are traditional pro-trade Republicans. And the people that have also talked about it are people like Kevin Brady, who's retiring and won't be there. We haven't heard from the Freedom Caucus. We haven't heard from the MAGA Republicans, who generally follow the Trump line. And, you know, one thing you can say firmly about Donald Trump is he's not a free trader. And I'm not sure that they're going to support that part of the party is going to support an ambitious pro-trade, pro-trade agreement pro-market access agenda, because that means that our tariffs would be on the table. Scott, what do you think? Look, I, I think uh, you're right about the lame duck session for certain. These December, November, December sessions after an election have a funny name for a reason, which is they are strange in their operation. There's a lot of people who come in who have either retired, chose to leave office, or lost their re-election campaign, who are kind of cranky about things. And uh, more importantly, with a party change, which is in this century, we almost always get a change in parties in one of the bodies every two years. It just it seems to happen that way. In doing so, we've got priorities that the administration and the Democratic House would like to wrap up and then the counter pressure the other way from the Republicans in the House who are currently a minority, but want to do it their way in January. So that tends to minimize the amount of things that actually get accomplished. And I think trade is one of the less likely things, in part because doing something substantial on trade takes a boatload of staff work. Now, that gives me hope for next year, because I think there's six to eight months of work for new professional staff to get it done. The last time we did Trade Promotion Authority in 2014-15, in that time period, there was very diligent, detailed work by the staff of, at that time, Mr. Baucus then became uh, Mr. Wyden and Senator Hatch and Congressman Dave Camp for most of that period of time. It was just before Kevin Brady's, before Mr. Camp left the Congress and, and uh, Kevin Brady became chairman or ranking member. But the staff work is very important. They got to sort out these issues. It's very detailed work. Now, our USTR, Catherine Tai, is familiar with this. She was on the Ways and Means Committee at the time, as was uh, what Jamie White, who is the deputy U.S. Trade Representative, one of the three deputies, who was, uh, on the Demo was the Democratic Trade Council for the Senate Finance Committee during that period of time. So they're aware of the work that needs to get done. So I think that will happen. I'm encouraged because I think when you have divided government, trade is actually one of the things you can do. This happened after Obama's uh, first midterm and when he got himself a Republican House in 20, the 2011, so 2010 elections. That was uh, Mr. Camp finishing up the uh, free trade agreements that have been negotiated in the Bush administration, but, but not acted upon. So you can do some constructive things. It does take work. It will take compromise. 
that's not going to happen quickly. But I think the Biden administration will be well served to work with the Congress and get negotiating authority because sooner or later, market access is going to come in handy. We're only going to be able to demand so much of our trading partners when we go to these international meetings. Call it what you want. We're asking them to do a bunch of stuff. We've got our agenda and we don't have anything for them. Okay, what they if they'll, they'll put up with our lectures and and do make the changes to their laws that we want them to make if we give them something in return, like market access to this huge home market. So I think they'll want it for that reason. They got to get there. It's going to take a while. So where exactly does this leave us heading into 2023? Because, you know, as you said, Bill, it doesn't seem like the forces that are aligned on the Republican side in the House are going to be too interested in a grand bargain with the Democrats and the Biden administration. Where does this leave us? Well, probably in gridlock. You know, people with short memories realize, you know, we've spent the last two years watching the Democratic left and the Democratic center go at it with each other on virtually everything. People tend to forget that in the early part of the last decade, in the John Boehner and Paul Ryan speakerships, the Republican right and the Republican center did exactly the same thing and had very bitter internal battles. That really was what drove both Boehner and, and Ryan to get out of the job. And that's all coming back. And you can see it already, you know, in the vote on making McCarthy the, the leader and the speaker candidate. You know, he won overwhelmingly 188 to 31, as I recall. But that means there's 31 people, some of whom may not vote for him on the House floor. And the speakership is a little bit different from party leadership. You need 218 votes on the House floor from the whole House to be elected speaker. If he can't get all 31 of those guys, Republican majority is going to be two or three. Right now, they're at 218, which is the minimum. I've been watching this. I think it'll probably end up with two somewhere between 220 and 221, maybe at best 222. The current Congress started with 222 Democrats, and it's hard. Yeah, You're going to see a lot of internal fights. I mean, the big ones will be over budgeting and how to attack Biden and what to do about it. And there do seem to be some people in the the constructive caucus or I guess the problem solvers caucus. It actually has a name. Josh Gottenheimer and and, um, his counterpart on the Republican side, who I can't remember right now. That's a uh, no labels sponsored thing. Very cool caucus. But look, I, I think you got to pretty well appropriately have a back seat initially because there's a lot of work to do. And let that happen out of sight because I think the Republicans will have to struggle with investigations versus legislation. And they've got to find a way to manage those two tracks. They're going to want to do oversight and investigations. They're going to want to do something close to regular order on appropriations. They're going to want to do, they have some legislative initiatives that they're going to want to advance. And in the meantime, trade can just go behind the scenes and you can solve these problems. Yeah, but not too far behind the scenes. Because right. Don't forget, Donald Trump is back. Yes. He announced Tuesday night and he made trade an issue. Tariff man. In, in his announcement. So tariff man is back. And when he runs, he'll be talking about it all the time. I mean, he'll be attacking Biden for being inadequate for whatever reason he comes up with. But, you know, with Trump, it's a theme. And as long as he's in the presidential race, I think that it's going to force the Republicans to deal with it, don't you think? Well, he's got a long time to talk about this now. I mean, he's going to be running for two years. Yes. And I actually think that helps because Democratic support for trade increased dramatically, measurably when candidate Trump and President Trump was a critic. Okay. And so 
Democrats have been all, always been reluctant to vote in favor of trade promotion authority. Democratic presidents liked it, but the House members particularly, but senators as well, were skittish on trade promotion authority. I think that the fact that you have already announced tariff man out there criticizing t- trade makes it possible to find something in the middle to move forward that would be more difficult if we weren't there. We'll see. We will see. We're going to be hearing about this for a long time. Yes. <laughs> the next election is two years away, and it sounds like trade is back on the ballot. You say that's a lifetime in politics, but when you do it every day, it feels yeah, look like... look at it this way. It means the trade guys will still be in business for two oh, more yeah. years. Yeah. The tariff man's good for business. Continued relevance, yes. No doubt. Well, guys... Let's now turn to one of our favorite subjects, and that is the trade and investment politics of social media. How does trade and investment intersect with these digital platforms? I mean, we're seeing so many headlines these days because of Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. What what bearing does this have on, on trade? Well, it appears from the reporting that there are some questions about whether or not Twitter's change in ownership is a national security issue. And a, a, a couple of senators, Senator Markey and Senator Murphy, and as well as uh, the national security advisor Sullivan, have mentioned that there may be a national security issue because of some Saudi financing. I'm not so sure that's the case. We'll get into the, to the subject of Twitter specifically. But first of all, we have a committee for foreign investment in the United States. CFIUS. CFIUS, which reviews foreign investment. Elon Musk is a U.S. citizen. Twitter was an American company. It was a U.S.-listed company that sold common stock before the acquisition. And what an American citizen, Elon Musk, did was acquired the company as a whole. So it now has a single owner instead of shareholders. He did it with debt financing, and there was a Saudi royal, not the government of Saudi Arabia, but a Saudi royal, who was a large equity investor in Twitter before Musk, who now is a debt investor. In other words, he tur- he sold his shares to Elon, but he provided bank financing for the acquisition. So he now holds debt from Musk or Twitter, represented by the single owner, Musk, but he was an investor before. So first, nothing changed. Second, it's not a foreign investment. So what he did was he helped with the financial engineering of the job. Well, he had a stock. He sold his stock in the purchase arrangement to Musk. And he he's made, a I think, I think a financial decision that Musk may have a turnaround in mind here and may succeed in making the platform more profitable than it was under previous ownership. That's a reason to invest. We don't know his reasons. But let's go back a step or two because it's it's, sure. it's more complicated than that. Yeah, it always is. <laughs> the, the administration is of multiple minds on this. Biden was asked about this, and he said he thought it ought to be looked into. Yes. Secretary Yellen was asked about this, and she thought there was no need to look into it. So right away, you've got a difference of opinion. It appears that the amount of the Saudi investment is, I'm told, about 8% of the thing, which is below the 10% where you would normally expect disclosure. This is 8, 8% of $44 billion. Yes. I mean, it's not a small amount of money, but it's... Right. I'm also, I've also been told, I don't know if it's correct, that there's Chinese money in here as well, although I think it's smaller than the, the Saudi money. I guess I would argue that, is this a foreign transaction? Scott's right. No, in the sense that the immediate buyer and controlling owner, Elon Musk, is an American citizen. 
but there is clearly foreign money in here. Is it worth having CFIUS look at? I guess I'm kind of with the president. I would say, sure, why not? Let them look at it. I don't think at the end of the day, they'll decide that there's a problem because the issue for CFIUS is, first of all, national security. And you've mm-hmm. got to demonstrate that Twitter has anything to do with national security. But second, the things they'll look at will be, do the foreigners have board seats? And of course, there's no board. Right. So the answer to that is no. Do they control the decision-making process? And then the other decision will be, do they have access to data? Because that's that's where there might be a security issue. Twitter collects data from all the millions of people that use it. What do they do with that data? Where is that data stored? Probably in the cloud, but who controls that data? That's the security question. And my guess is that CFIUS will examine that question in this case, probably find that there's nothing to be worried about, and life will go on. But I think it needs to be looked at. Yeah, certainly equity investors, if you're a shareholder in Twitter before, in the old Twitter, if you were a shareholder, you had no access to that data, even if you had a relatively large block. And many foreign investors choose to take 5% or less shares, even large sovereign wealth funds will take relatively small equity shares in companies. So there is no such conflict. So they, they, they avoid the triggers that Bill mentioned. Here, So we'll see what happens. The concerns about TikTok are different in kind, and that has to do with the data storage practices of TikTok. But, uh, but the, 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 the hubbub over Elon Musk was, uh, or Twitter, if it does get looked at, I'm, I'm, my, my instinct is that they're not going to find much of, a, of any concern. There may be a mitigation effort because of something from the data, as Bill points out, but even that seems like a stretch. I'm inclined to say that on... on Twitter, the issue is going to be whether Musk destroys the company on his own rather than if anything else happens. But a cautionary note to all our listeners, don't take investment advice from me. That that (laughs) is an opinion. Exactly. I, I I can tell you right now, I am not paying a monthly fee for my little blue check mark. So his idea of monetizing the check marks, man, good luck to him. Do you have a little blue check mark? I do. And so does CSIS. And I'm not paying for it, and neither is CSIS. Well, well, you can join the uh, the great unwash unchecked like me. So yep. that's uh, and it's just it's just a fine user experience that way. Well, they have they haven't taken mine away yet. My son asked me the other day. He's like, Dad, are you paying for your checkmark? And I said, Hell no, I'm not paying for my checkmark. So he says, Well, why do you still have it? I go, I guess they haven't gotten around to taking it away taking it away from me yet. There are a few benefits that come with it, like being able to edit a tweet. Which, if you if you tweet a lot, is pretty useful. Yeah, I, I'm. You know, I'll pay ten bucks a month for my locker at the pool, but uh, I ain't paying ten bucks a month for my blue check mark. Just not happening. Fair enough. Well, look, there's a bigger point to be made about foreign investment, which is we need it in the United States. All right, the federal government in the last fiscal year, fiscal year 2022, had deficit spending to the tune of 1.4 trillion dollars. Every month that we, we get the current account report from the Treasury Department, and we find that about we run a current account deficit, which is often called the trade deficit, of four to four and a half percent of gross domestic product in the United States. So we run a large and persistent current account deficit. The way you finance current account deficits, which are often caused by government spending, is to attract foreign capital, which is, is the ledger offset. So you have trade on one side, investment on the other. Foreign investment is the way we, we basically run a stable economy and have consume more than we produce as Americans. So we, we 
the national security reviews are entirely appropriate. They're well done. They're backed by bipartisan legislation in the form of FIRMA that's been recently updated. I think that process works well, but there's a lot of skepticism or controversy about foreign investment. The fact is we needed to run our economy and we've been well served by open investment practices and policies in the past. So before we get off this subject, let's talk about one other very large and important social media company, and that's TikTok. Senator Mark Warner said recently that the previous administration was right about TikTok, which is currently undergoing its own CFIUS investigation. Do you guys agree? What does this say about U.S.-China business relations? Well, I mean, one level, you could argue TikTok is, is less serious if you if you watch it, but the security issue may be more relevant. There is a CFIUS issue here because in the past, TikTok acquired TikTok, which is a subsidiary of ByteDance, which is a Chinese company, acquired a U.S. company. And that transaction, I think, has been concluded. But CFIUS has the authority to, to go back and review consummated transactions and, if necessary, require that they be unwound. So there's a jurisdictional issue here, and CFIUS has been looking at it. Trump tried to force the sale of TikTok, and that discussion continues on. There were press stories about two or three months ago that there was close to, they were close to sell it, presumably to an American entity. But there's been no announcement since then. And, and those stories were immediately accompanied by other people saying that, well, the Justice Department continues to have problems with any proposed deal. So it's a little bit of a mystery exactly where it sits right now. There are data issues. It's, in a way, it's like Twitter. TikTok accumulates massive amounts of data from the people who listen to it and watch it and the people who put things on it. And the government has had historically, I think, two kinds of concerns about that data. One is the Chinese, in this case, since the, the parent company is Chinese, might use it as a propaganda instrument to feed TikTok users with pro-Chinese information. Or in turn, on the other side, which is probably the larger problem, is that the data could be transferred to China, which a lot of personal data about individuals and their viewing habits and what they listen to and where, what they do. And this could all be ended up in Chinese hands and they could use it for some nefarious security-related purpose. TikTok, until recently, claimed vigorously that none of their data ends up in China. They have now, over the last few weeks, admitted that, yes, indeed, some of it does end up in China to a very limited number of people, they say. But that may very well change the equation here because it suggests that the people who are concerned about that were right to be concerned about it. And I think there's a possibility here of a happy ending, the happy ending being that it gets sold and the issue kind of goes away. I think the issue in the sale will be in the end, what we were just talking about, control of the data. And if there's an American buyer, will the American buyer be able to keep complete control of the data? I think it's clear that ByteDance doesn't want to give up everything. They don't want to give up the name, I think, and they probably want to extract as much revenue as they can. But the security issue is not who gets the money. The security issue is who gets the data. And they may be able to work that out. Data is what adds value in these uh, applications. And uh, a software engineer once described TikTok as a data harvesting machine that happens to allow video sharing. <laughs> so that's sure. essentially what it's, it's structured to collect data. Yeah, I mean, CSIS has stayed off of TikTok because it's been being examined as a national security issue. And it's very legitimate concern. So good to talk about the social media stuff, guys. But we also had a very big meeting between President Biden and Chinese President Xi this past week in Bali. What's your assessment? 
They did exactly what I think everybody expected. They had a pleasant conversation that did not break down into finger pointing, you know, acrimony or criticism. Biden described she is the way he's always been, straightforward and clear. And they agreed to keep talking. In fact, they agreed to restart some conversations that the Chinese had stopped after Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, the biggest one being the climate talk. And Secretary Kerry confirmed that he and his Chinese counterpart are now back talking and negotiating in Egypt, in Sharm el-Sheikh, during the COP27 conference. So in that sense, it was good. Some degree of communication has been restored. Some degrees of civility has been restored. Do they agree on anything? No. Are they likely to agree on anything? No, except maybe on climate. But I think the mood is better and it's always better to talk and communicate than it is not to. Yes, look, every administration, at least going back to the Clinton administration, has had a program or a method for managing the relationship with China. It was very clearly both in, uh, I think, Bush 41 and in the Clinton administration The project was completing China's accession to the WTO. And so the U.S. Trade Representative, starting with Carla Hills and then Ambassador Cantor and uh, Ambassador Barshevsky, were responsible for the management of the U.S.-China economic relation to a great measure. Now, this got more elaborate, starting with the W. Bush or Bush 43 administration, where uh, it was the Treasury Secretary, Hank Paulson in particular, who was greatly respected by the Chinese and led the strategic economic dialogue, which was geared toward cooperation. Then the Obama administration added an ampersand. It became the strategic and economic dialogue. It was led principally out of the State Department with involvement from other cabinet offices, including Treasury. With the Trump administration, there was a management relationship, but mostly geared toward reciprocity. And uh, USTR Lighthizer led it. In the case now of the Biden administration, he's tasked Secretary Blinken. So it's back to the State Department for managing it. That practice has continued, but the challenge is different. In the early years, we were managing cooperation and convergence and mutual benefit. I think what's happening now is the two economies, the two countries are diverging on a great many issues. And Secretary Blinken will have to manage that divergence in a way that uh, without surprises, without miscalculations, uh, some ways is a tougher challenge. We're heading for more decoupling economically. I've been predicting this for a long time. It's not a tsunami. It's not like a a bow wave of companies leaving, and they're not all going to leave. In some cases, it'll just be creating redundant supply chains and redundant suppliers somewhere else, so they're not dependent on China. But in fact, while both countries deny that they're trying to force companies to choose, Both countries are pursuing policies that force them to choose. And you're going to see more of that as companies in the United States and also, I think, in Europe scramble to make sure that they're not vulnerable to having supplies of critical items cut off because the Chinese are mad at somebody that week. I mean, if you talk to the Australians or the Lithuanians or in the past, the Norwegians, you know, the Chinese have weaponized trade. And if they don't like what you're doing politically, What was the Australian offense? The Australians called for an investigation into where COVID began. And the Chinese response was to stop buying a whole range of Australian products. If that's your strategy, companies are starting to think, is that going to happen to me? And maybe I need to have alternative sources of supply, particularly if China is the only one. And so you're going to see more pulling apart. I think Bill's right. Look, and this decoupling or divergence is not just a U.S.-China phenomenon. What I 
read about the G20 is you have the G7. It basically evenly divides into the G7 and the BRICS. And in a lot of ways, the G7 have a different set of expectations and a different direction than the BRICS do. And uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that affects both the U.S.-China relations and the broader G20 effectiveness over time. You guys do think we're seeing a bit of a thawing of relations between the West and China, don't you? There's a platform for communication, which is always a good thing, because uh, whether or not the there's friendly relations, clear communication and, and avoiding miscalculation is at a premium given the, the size and scope and 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 capabilities of the two economies. So I think I think that's something to be grateful for. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a thaw. I, I think Xi Jinping is pursuing his own course, which and I don't think he's changed one bit. I think he finds it convenient to have a civil dialogue with the Americans. I don't think Biden has expectations that we're going to come to much agreement with China on much of anything. But I think he also agrees that a civil dialogue is good. And also, it, it helps make sure there aren't mistakes and misunderstandings based on lack of communication. You need to have these channels open because if something happens, particularly some kind of a military event, collision in the South China Sea, for example, you want to have lines open so that you can make sure that it was hopefully an accident and people don't uh, go off into the stratosphere with a set of horrible assumptions about what the other side is doing. Yeah, and with Taiwan at issue, there is no room for misunderstandings or miscommunications. That's, that's for sure. Guys, this has been a great discussion. Thanks for being the trade guys. And we will be back the week after Thanksgiving. So happy Turkey Day to everybody. I know I'm wishing both you guys and Emily um, a really fantastic Thanksgiving. Thank you. The same to you. Happy Turkey Day. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.